The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Romans chapter 6, the topic is living in victory, and this is the seventh area of our study in the series, Living for Jesus. If I were to give you a single verse of what it means to live a victorious Christian life, I would go to Romans 14, verse number 23, and in the last part of that verse where the Apostle Paul said, For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Faith is a very important concept for us as Christians. It's actually the living principle of the Christian life. And we think about our initial faith in Christ, and that is our saving faith. That's when we recognize uh, who Christ is and what we are, and we put our hope and our trust in Christ as our only Lord and Savior. And that's the beginning of our trust in Him, but that is not the only faith that we have throughout our Christian lives. But faith does have to be exercised every day. It's not just the initial faith that we have, but it must be exercised every day, and the overcoming of our weaknesses and our temptations of the flesh. So we can't live as God's people without an active faith. Uh, We read in Hebrews chapter 11 where the writer talks continually about the faith of those heroes that are mentioned in that chapter. And you know how it goes, by faith Abel and by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Isaac and On and on it goes, and it talks about how those believers were able to be successful in their lives and to receive God's promises because of faith. So what is a victorious Christian life? Well, it's one in which we overcome sin. It's one in which we defeat the power of Satan and his influences. Uh, When we receive Christ as Savior, we receive the ability to be free from all sin. Not just the past sins. We have been forgiven of those, but we do not have to live in sin. God has forgiven us of all of our sin and enabled us to be set free from it. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Victorious Christian living is not about riches. It's not about having good health. It's not about whether you prosper physically or financially, but it means how do you prosper spiritually. Now I want you to notice what John said in the third epistle. Uh, He wrote that to a good Christian man by the name of Gaius. He said, The elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I wished above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now apparently... This man Gaius was not well physically, and so John desired that his physical health would prosper even as he was prospering spiritually. And contrary to the claims of 
the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers, a Christian that's sick isn't necessarily one that doesn't have enough faith to be healed. Gaius apparently was a very faithful man. He was prospering in his soul, and victorious Christian living doesn't mean that your life has to be good in the physical. It doesn't mean it has to be good in the financial. Physical problems, financial problems are, are not a sign that you are actually doing well and you are prospering in your soul. I think of Horatio Spafford, who was a Christian that lost his business in the great Chicago fire, and that was a horrific loss to him, um, but it didn't dampen his desire to serve the Lord. And so after that happened, he decided that what he would do is to join an evangelistic campaign in England with uh, uh, Dwight Moody and Ira Sankey, and he decided that he would send his family ahead of him, uh, and then he would meet them in England later while he stayed uh, behind here in America to finish up some business. And while his family, his wife and four daughters, were on their way as they were sailing to England, their ship uh, collided with another ship, and four, all four of his daughters were killed, and only his wife survived. And then later when Horatio Spafford met his wife in England, or he was on his way, rather, I should say, to meet her in England, that was when he penned that great hymn that is my favorite hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And that just shows you that that what happens in the outward circumstances, what's going on around you, that has nothing at all to do with whether your soul is prospering. Living a victorious Christian life is about what happens on the inside. Is it actually well with your soul? Well, now we want to turn to this text in Romans chapter 6. But before we read that, I want you to just look just a little bit before that in the fifth chapter to the end of chapter 5 in verse number 19. Here it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I know that you recognize that the man that is disobedient in that verse, in verse number 19, that man is Adam. And it was through Adam that all people became sinners. And since Adam fell, God's law has accentuated that fact that we are all sinners. And uh, the purpose of God's law, God, God giving his law, was to drive us to the grace of God as the means by which we could be delivered from our sins. And so as deep and terrible as sin is, as difficult as it is for us to overcome, because that is our natural desire to it, that's what we lean to, that's what we're after, Yet the grace of God is abundantly able to free us from our sin, to deliver us from sin. Sin reigned from Adam until Christ, and we couldn't escape it. It was a taskmaster that kept us in bondage. But then Jesus came, and Jesus came to break sin's hold. He came to free us from sin and to replace that with righteousness. And the Scriptures describes that as a righteousness without which we cannot see God. And so the victorious Christian life is a life in which Christ rules. Just what the choir sang a moment ago, come and reign in me. It's a life that Christ rules. He reigns in our life by conquering sin 
And as our text will say, sin shall not have dominion over us. So if there's still sin, if sin is the habit of your life, then you aren't truly saved. Sin can't reign where Christ reigns. And so, therefore, if sin rules you, you don't have Christ. Sin um, cannot be a habit where Christ reigns. Now, sin can't be a habit, but it certainly can be a nuisance to us. And it is. But that nuisance can be brought under control. Now, let's look then at our text. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse number 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. I think that Sunday evening is a really enjoyable time at Berean Baptist. I've mentioned several times that our church does a very good job of retaining the numbers of our Sunday morning attendance, uh, carrying that over into our Sunday night services, so that on Sunday nights often we have 80 to 90 percent of the attendance that we have on Sunday mornings. And I would say that we do a lot better than most churches because most of them have zero percent attendance on Sunday night, and that's because they stopped having Sunday night services a long time ago. And that's the reason is that people just wouldn't come. They just stopped going to church. They didn't want to come. And so I, I, I kind of find it hard to shake this opinion that Sunday night churchgoers are generally better Christians than those who come on Sunday mornings only. Now, I don't want you to tell anybody that's not here that I just said that because I know it's not true in all cases. Uh, the one that you talk to might be the exception to that rule, so we'll keep that opinion just a secret between us tonight, and we'll just talk between ourselves. But I would say this, that without reservation, that churches that stopped having Sunday night services because nobody would come, or that the preacher was too lazy to prepare a message for Sunday night, those are churches that have a definite, very definite spiritual problem. And I find it hard to believe that the half-crazed worship crowd that comes on Sunday morning and lifts up their hands to Jesus to praise Jesus is too sorry to come out on Sunday night. I can't really believe that they have 
uh, that they are, have a, they're able spiritually to serve the Lord as they should, and uh, that there's not something very seriously wrong with that, uh, that they don't have any struggles with sin throughout the rest of, their, uh, rest of the week. I, I, find, I find it very hard to believe that they would be living for the Lord during the rest of the week. Uh, victorious Christian living is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a seven-day-a-week thing. And uh, it's, a, it, it's a thing where you, you don't do this just for a year. That's not victorious Christian living. This is a thing that when you get saved, you keep on year after year after year serving the Lord, doing what he tells you to do, and living in uh, the light of God's Word. So it's an all-year thing. And I believe that people that limit their exposure to the Word of God are going to have a very difficult problem trying to serve God. Now, I remember several years ago, I attended some uh, very large Baptist churches in Tampa, Florida. I, I was working there for about a year. I was working there, and three weeks out of the month, I would be there, and then for a week, I would be back here. And uh, while I was there, I, I wanted to go to church. And uh, I like Sunday night church. And I visited a lot of churches there that didn't have Sunday night services. One of these churches was really a huge church. I mean, they had upwards to 10,000 or more members. Uh, uh, and and uh, the pastor, uh, to this day, I think he's probably the best preacher that I've ever heard. But that was a church that didn't have Sunday night services. And uh, since I like to go to church on Sunday night, I, I stopped attending there. And so I started to look for another one. Well, I found another church. This one was smaller than that one. This one only had about two or 3,000 members. But this was also a church that had stopped having Sunday night services. But then they got a new pastor. And this new pastor was a Southern Baptist that had been raised on Sunday night church. And so he told the people that if they would come on Sunday nights, that he promised them that he would put all the energy into preaching the Sunday night sermons as he did the Sunday morning sermons. And this fellow was a really good preacher, too. He was a very fast preacher. I mean, you think that I talk fast? Some people complain about that. You talk too fast. Well, here was a guy you had to take speed to keep up with him. He talked so fast. But he was a really, really good preacher. But the point is that I want to make here, that I want to make is to let you know that I do think that Sunday night services are important, and there's a huge hole that's left in the Christian life when you don't care enough to put the same energy into coming on Sunday night as you would on coming on Sunday morning, or the same energy that that preacher gave in preaching a Sunday night sermon. So I do believe that members of Berean Baptist Church ought to be here on Sunday nights. And I know that when you come, you're going to be blessed by, by what you hear. It's not the fact that I'm preaching, but it's the fact that the Word of God is being preached, that the Word of God's being told, and that's the thing that's going to make you strong. And living a victorious life for Christ is when sin is choked out. And I know that the only way that sin can be choked out, the only way that it can be dealt with is through the Word of God. You have to hear God's Word and implement God's Word. And I want you to remember that too when you think about Wednesday night services, that it's good to come on Wednesday nights. You know, I know this, that if we stopped having Wednesday night services, if I were to announce to you tonight that there's not going to be any more Wednesday night service, you know the people that would be the most upset? The ones that don't come, probably. Now, you, you that come on, Sunday, on, on, on Wednesday nights, I mean, I hope you'll see some value in that. But I know this, as sure as I'm standing here, that the Sunday morning crowd would say, what's wrong with that preacher? What's wrong with Brian Baptist Church? What's happened to them? 
They stopped having church on Sunday night. That preacher's gone off the rails. He's gone off on the deep end. But it's the very same people who won't come on Wednesday night. I don't understand that. But I would say this. I think it's much easier to stay out of sin when you are in church than when you are out of church. And so if nothing else, do this. Come to church and stay out of trouble. We'll keep you out of trouble here. But then I realize there are some of you that still are in trouble because you give me trouble Uh, There are people sometimes that go out on a Sunday night and their parting gift to me is a shot in the chops. That happens sometimes. But as I said, I do believe Sunday night churchgoers are generally better Christians, although I realize my assessment of that doesn't count for all that much because I can't see into your heart. And I do know that people that come on Sunday nights also have problems with sin. There are struggles with sin. Grady Nutt, who was a old Southern Baptist comedian used to say, uh, I grew up in a Baptist church and I learned sin from the experts. And uh, that's pretty much the truth, I think. Uh, Many of us look pretty good on the outside, but we're not too good on the inside. We still have a lot of sin in our lives. And to that, I would add, some of you don't look too good on the outside either. You carry your sin around with you on the outside. So I know that everybody struggles with sin, whether you're saved or lost, uh, you have to deal with it. But the difference between the saved and the lost is that sin is not bothersome to the lost. Sin is their way of life, and so it doesn't really bother them all that much. In Romans chapter 1, Paul characterizes the way that uh, sinful people are, the lost people are, uh, He says they have turned away from the righteousness of God when they very clearly understand who God is. They understand that they are accountable unto him. They receive benefits from him. And yet they turn away from God in all forms of wickedness. And he makes a very interesting comment about it in the 32nd verse of that first chapter. He says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, what he's telling us there is that people that live in sin are not content to do it alone. What they want to do, uh, they revel in it, and they want others to revel in it too. What they want is some company in their sin. Uh, They want someone to commiserate with them in their sin, and so they excite other people to do the same things that they do. In our study later on, we'll talk about that, about how that being with the wrong kinds of people can be a problem for you as a Christian. But that's what they want to do. They want to excite others to sin. And you see that every day in places like watching advertisements on television. You watch these advertisements and what do they do? They make sin such an appealing thing. This is the thing that you want to do. And they encourage people in it. And people laugh that up and they're really not very bothered by sin. And that turns out to be a very big problem for those who claim to be saved. Because if you can be like that and you can be comfortable with sin and sin doesn't really bother you all that much, then you have a very deep spiritual problem. Now, you can't escape the implications of what we see in Scripture that Christians cannot be at ease with sin. The Holy Spirit lives in us and He's not going to let you be comfortable with sin. And so you might ask, can you live in sin and be a Christian? Well, I think that we could draw a a strong inference from Jesus on this question. Uh, He was accused, you remember, of casting out devils by the power of Satan. And Jesus just sort of pondered what they said about that. And he said, well, that's kind of an interesting thing. 
How could I cast out Satan unless I'm stronger than him? And he said, how are you going to enter into a strong man's house and rob him unless you first bind the strong man? Now, he's talking about a little bit different subject than what I'm talking about here. But you flip around what he said there and apply that to the Holy Spirit. How is sin going to come in to the Holy Spirit's house unless it's first able to bind the Holy Spirit? How's it going to come in and spoil the Holy Spirit's home, his temple, unless it first binds the Holy Spirit? I think that's an impossible thing. I don't think that's going to happen. The Holy Spirit has us. We belong to him. Our body is his temple. Our soul is his habitation. And sin is not going to be able to conquer the Holy Spirit. So you see what I'm pointing out here is the impossibility that we could ever have anything that's called carnal Christianity. It doesn't exist. Victorious Christian living is victory over sin, and that's because Christ conquered sin. That's what we see here as the theme of Romans chapter 6 in this part of it. These are assurances that we have been set free from sin, and we don't have to live in it any longer. Now, as we look at this text, there are some who say that what we have here in Romans chapter 6, in these 14 verses, is the declaration of emancipation. That would be the emancipation from sin. Now, President Abraham Lincoln, if you know your history, you know that uh, during the Civil War, he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in which the government said that all slaves in slave-holding states were set free. Now, interestingly, the freedom of slaves was only for states that had joined the Confederacy, because there was nothing at all in the Emancipation Proclamation that said that those who held slaves in the border states, those that still supported the Union, that they also had to free their slaves. Uh, That that wasn't in the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, speaking of slavery, we know that slavery is tyranny. We know that slavery is bondage. And we can look at that and we could argue the original reasons for the Civil War if you want to do that. And here now, 150 years later, that's become a kind of a hot topic as you've seen it in the newspapers, as they've talked about the Confederate flag in South Carolina and also in Mississippi. And we can look at that and we could study the history of it and maybe come to the conclusion, well, the whole thing was initially a states' rights issue. uh, And we would say, well, it wasn't so much about freeing slaves, but it was about states' rights. And I think that that's true. But I also know this, that by 1863 when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, it had then become uh, an issue about freedom. It became a war of freedom. Now, in our text, Paul emphasizes emancipation, and this emancipation is about the freedom from sin, and it's about freedom for all believers from sin, even those that are living in the border states. They also can be free from sin. And that's because, as this text describes, Christ won the victory for us. He won the victory at Calvary, and it was his resurrection that guaranteed the freedom that we have to be released from the bondage of sin. But I want to caution you about this, that slavery to sin has been given up, but the text says nothing at all about slavery ending, that slavery has been given up. Now, we think about freedom as the ability to do anything that we want, But there's none of us that would argue that being free in the United States means, well, we can just do anything that we want. No, we still have to live by the laws of this country. We're not uh, free to break the laws of the country. 
And so when you talk about freedom from sin and freedom in Jesus Christ, you're not talking about being totally uncontrolled. It's not, we're not speaking here about just going about doing anything that you want to do. Now, what we have here is actually a change of ownership. We have a change from one master to another master, and that is from one slave master to another slave master. Now, I know that chokes up some Christians, and, um, but we do need to understand that a Christian is free only as he yields himself to the passions, the desires, and the goals of another, and that other is the Lord Jesus Christ who has become our master. Now, the old master was sin, and the new master is Jesus Christ. Now, you can see this change of ownership in verse number 13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So we must yield to God. That same thought is expressed in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin under death or of obedience under righteousness? Now, we have to pay close attention to that wording. We were the servants of sin and death. We were enslaved to that, but now we have become servants of obedience to the righteousness of God. Verse 17 says, But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now, it's quite strange that many Christians will admit that we were servants of sin, that we were helpless to do anything about it. But then the same people fight this terminology in the second part, and they can't see that we have now become obligated servants of Christ. Now, that word servant that's used here is the same in both places, and the King James translators would have uh, done us a tremendous favor if they had translated that word servants as slaves, because that's what the word means. When you say servants, that just kind of takes the edge off of that word, and it's very unfortunate because it's a very strong word, and the intention is to show us that as much as we were fully dedicated to sin and we were controlled by sin, now we are to be fully dedicated to Christ and be controlled by Him. And so to put it to you bluntly, we are still slaves, albeit we're slaves to a better master. And we're slaves in better service. We're slaves in a more fulfilling service and happy service and rewarding service and willing servitude. But folks, we are slaves to him nonetheless. So let's think about this for a moment. How then can we be delivered from the bondage of sin? And it's not as if people are totally unaware of this problem. Uh, we all know this. The world knows this. Human vice is a problem for people. Human vice causes all kinds of problems. You can think about it in just about any, any way that you want to look at that, from murder to adultery to uh, the sex trade to homosexuality, all of these things. They are all harmful to us, and so uh, human vice is a problem for us. And so we're always dealing with that. Even lost people are dealing with consequences of sin, and, and uh, we have laws because we recognize that you can't just let all of this stuff run loose, let it go, don't say anything about it. And so there are attempts to clean up sin, even though people may not always call that sin. Now, there are actually three approaches to the problem of sin that have been used for centuries as attempts to overcome it, or in some cases to excuse it. And I want to talk to you just very briefly here as we go on 
about three different proposals about dealing with sin, three different theories about sin that really aren't right. The first of these is the educational theory of sin. And that is that if people could just be more highly educated, then they would understand the consequences of sin. They would be more passionate about ending it, and thereby they would stop doing it and sin would be defeated. Well, education might be able to uh, help people to rationalize the principles of sin, but education is never going to release somebody from their jealousies, from pride, from many of the corrupting influences of the soul. Well, several weeks ago, at the uh, beginning of the football season, you may remember seeing this story in the news about some 49ers fans who beat up a Minnesota Vikings fan. And I don't know exactly what happened there, but it seems like the 49ers had become the Oakland Raiders, which is pretty much the ultimate sin. And uh, I guess that the 49ers had become better at beating up their opponents in the stands than on the field, and so that kind of changed things. But anyway, they said this, that the cause of what happened was alcohol, that these guys had gotten drunk, and so they beat up this other person, and so the solution to this is they discussed it. What are we going to do about these kinds of incidents? Because they happen, you know, in other parts of the country as well. And they said, what are we going to do about this? And so they came up with their solution, which was, well, okay, we won't sell any alcohol after halftime. Now, I don't go to the 49ers game, so I don't know if they actually did that, but that was a proposal. Just don't sell any alcohol after halftime. And so in other words, what you can do is you can sin up to halftime but then it's time to stop sinning. So what they do is they indulge sin just a little and uh, instead of getting rid of the problem entirely, just indulge it a little. You see, that's what education does. Education tells you, drink responsibly. Drink responsibly. Educate people to sin responsibly rather than just getting rid of the rot gut stuff entirely. Just teach them how to do it responsibly. So what does education do? it gives us more sophisticated sinners. So now what we can do is we can steal from people by going to the office and taking the, the computer and the mouse and the keyboard and we can rob people of their bank accounts by hacking into them. So we've just got smarter sinners. Education made a Bernie Madoff who was skilled at pilfering investment accounts to the tune of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. And so education does nothing but to put a better face on sin. It just helps sin to move up from blue collar to white collar. Well, the second theory about sin is the environmental theory, that what we really need to do is to change a person's environment, and then that will change his attitude about sin. Now, I tend to think of this one more as the excuse theory because it gives people the woe-is-me excuse. I mean, all of my problems are caused by what goes on around me that it's everybody else's fault, it's not my fault. Look what society has done to me. And so people get into drugs and alcohol, and they say, well, I had to do that because that's the life that I've always known. That's how I've always grown up. It's the hood that I live in. That's what causes my sin. So if you can change the environment that people live in, then there won't be any more sin. And yet you find out that rehab centers are filled with people that have good jobs, and good, uh, nice houses, corporate execs are hooked on cocaine. And wasn't it in the paper a few weeks ago, or has been, that I think it was a Google executive or one of the tech companies that was killed by his prostitute? You see those things in the paper? I mean, is the environment the real cause of people's sin? 
I mean, how, ma how many times have you read about Hollywood stars with the millions of dollars that they have that have overdosed on drugs? You read about these people dying all of the time. What causes that? Is it the poor environment that causes it? No environment is not going to change things. You can't get rid of the environment and cure sin. Now, you're not going to conquer it by doing that. A few weeks ago, when Brother Castro was here, uh, he and Jorge were having a conversation there in the back, and I was standing there, walked up, uh, and heard some of that congregation. And Jorge was, a uh, conversation rather, and uh, Jorge was talking to him about visiting the prison where Brother Castro is a chaplain. And I think that maybe Jorge is still planning on going down there to visit and uh, to preach to them, to get some training about how to come back and deal with some of you heathens here. But I think he's going to go down there and he's going he's to preach to the people in the prison. But anyway, I was listening to what Jorge had to say, and, and uh, he said, well, I can identify with that crowd. He said, I identify with them. He says, because I grew up in the streets and there was crime everywhere. But then he said, I've never been to jail. I, I suppose we can trust him on that. He said he'd never been to jail about it. Well, I, I think maybe he did say something about marriage being a prison. He had experience with that, and <laughs> I know his wife makes him sit in the back seat of the car. But uh, other than that, other than that, uh, we think about, well, what is it? Well, what, what is it that caused Jorge to be delivered from sin? Well, we'll answer that question and come back to it in just a minute. But this is a thing that people do. They try to change the environment. Even religion has tried to do this. Uh, they think that you can cure the problem in people by changing it. And so uh, they send men to monasteries and they send women to convents. And there they're supposed to be holy because they're living in a holy environment. Do you think it's strange then that in that environment that pedophilia develops? And homosexuality develops, and there's drunkenness among priests. And you find it strange that there are aborted fetuses that are found in convents because nuns have been fornicating with priests, and they have babies that have to be aborted so that the thing gets covered up. And you say, well, I didn't know that. Well, that's true. I mean, that's the history of Roman Catholicism. This is not something that I've made up. That's one of the dirty little secrets of Roman Catholicism that it doesn't get told very much. But you read about this. It's been going on for centuries. Uh, the history of it's been written by priests and nuns that some of them, I think, they, they did get saved and they came out of that thing because there was so much hypocrisy that was involved in it. And the point is that the environment did absolutely nothing for them. Changing environment did no good at all. You can't cure sin, or if you can't cure it in a righteous or religious person, I should say, if you can't cure it in them, who are you going to cure it in? So that doesn't work. So education and environment don't work. Well, there, there's still another approach to this. Now, going back to Jorge, what changed him was belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't the environment. It was trusting him, trusting Christ. So education and environment don't work. Well, there's third, still a third theory that people try, and that is the psychological theory, that sin is just a matter of changing the mind. Now, actually, that one's on the right track, but it uses the wrong method because what it does is to change the mind about what sin is. It's about redefining sin, and doing things like correcting a person's self-esteem. When you've got all these problems and you're 
deep into something you shouldn't be doing, then let's just change the definition of sin so you feel better about it. Change it. Make people feel better about themselves. Tell them that they're victims of their sin. Prop up the inner man. Give a positive outlook to it. Uh, be true to yourself and make it all good for you. And then this stuff is not going to bother you anymore. And so thus we have Norman Vincent Peale, we have Robert Schuller and Joel Osteen and the like. Make it all better by making you think better. The world is about you. And if you think it's all about you and live, it that, live that way, that everything else is going to go away. I don't think that we see any of those ways in Romans 6. So how do we get free from sin? How do you purify your thoughts? How, how do you get victory over your temper? Do you want to be rid of your jealousy and your pride? Do you want to be able to go to church with no sense of guilt because there are no sins that you can't overcome? Oh, there is a way to do it. And Paul gives it in this text. That victory over sin, freedom from sin, is secured by becoming a slave to Jesus Christ. It's not to make the world about you, but to recognize that it's all about him. And as it says here, to yield yourselves as instruments to God to do what God wants to do with you. Are you capable of doing that? No one else is capable. And not only are you capable, you are commanded to it. This is God's demand for you because you're under the ownership of the king. Uh, you're not your own. You've been bought with the price, Scripture says. And the price that was paid for you was higher than any price that's ever been paid. And so you can be sure that God is not going to surrender to your decision to live your life the way that you choose. Not after he's paid the ultimate price for you. So here's number one in your outline, which should, since we're just getting started in the outline, which should be done by about nine. So just hang on here. Uh, here's the start. Number one is the demands to meet for living in victory. Verse number 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Now I want you to look for just a minute at the word reign. And uh, that's another reason I asked them to sing that song, Come and Reign in Me. I want to emphasize the word reign in verse number 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now, the concept of reigning is not something that would have been lost on these Romans. Paul knew, or they knew, I should say, exactly what he was talking about, or they, they, as they listened to him, they knew what he was talking about. Uh, we as Americans, we might miss this in some degree because we're arrogant people. We have the attitude that we're above the rest of the world and nobody's going to tell us what to do. The Jews would have recognized this as well. They would know the word very well because both Jews and Gentiles lived under an emperor who was at, very, at, at times very, very cruel. He reigned over them. The Christian community that received this letter was horribly mistreated. The Roman emperors were hostile to Christians. Uh, I think most of you know the stories about Nero, and he was one of the one that was just uh, practically unparalleled in his disgust for the Christian faith. Nero was an inventive torturer. Uh, he must have become bored with just throwing Christians to the lions, and so he thought of other ways to persecute them. One of the things that he did was um, you know, he loved to go into his gardens at night 
And so what he would do is take Christians and uh, douse them in oil, pour oil all over them, hang them on a pole, and then light them. And then those fires from those burning Christians would light his gardens at night. This word rain was certainly a very vivid image in their minds. They knew what it meant to have someone reign over them. And when you have someone like Nero that's reigning over you, you want to make a change. So if Nero, uh, in this particular case, represents sin, then that's a master not to be desired. That's not something that you want. And so if you desire to come out from under that kind of control, something that harms you so badly as sin does, then what do you do about it? Well, this is what you do, and this is as far as we'll get tonight, and that is to dethrone sin. Dethrone sin. I don't know if you're getting the picture like I want to get across to you. I don't know if you grasp the magnitude of what sin does to people, but here it says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now, Paul's intent, then, is to personify sin as a ruler. And the challenge for these people is not to let their bodies to be used for sin, because sin is pictured as a ravaging, hateful ruler. So how would they stop it? Well, they would have to stop the places where sin could intrude. They had to fortify themselves against it. Just like a, a king's army would come to invade, to take them captive, they had to set up their defenses against it to stop it from happening. So where are the places that sin tries to worm its way in? Well, what sin is always trying to do is to get into the mind to destroy it. How does sin enter? Well, the Bible tells us that. It gives us some clues about it. It tells us that sin can enter in through our eyes. And so they, it says you have to guard your eyes against wickedness that you shouldn't see. You remember that David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. Wasn't it interesting that David's greatest sin came through wandering eyes? That he was walking on the rooftop of his house one day and he spied Bathsheba taking a bath and instead of diverting his eyes from that, instead he just embraced it. And you know what happened next? In Psalm 103, when David said this, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes, did you know that he actually preceded that statement by saying, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart? Wouldn't it have been so much better for David if he had heeded that advice, if he had written that before he had the sin with Bathsheba? Oh, it would have been a different reign for David if he had. So we have to do the same. We have to guard our eyes. We have to set up a barrier to keep sin from entering there. Well, next, and we're going quickly on these, that we need to guard our ears. What sin wants to do is to stay on the throne. It doesn't want to be displaced, and so sin will perk up every time it gets a sight and a sound. Now, I think of music that we hear. You know, everybody knows that music can move people, that music speaks to people. I saw a very peculiar sight this past summer as I was driving down the, the highway and stopped at a light. There was a fellow in front of me, and he was, a, he was an old guy. And the way that I know he was an old guy was because I don't know anybody else that on a 95-degree day drives the car with the windows down wearing an insulated ski jacket. So I know he had to be an old guy. So he, he's there in his car, and he was listening to something on the radio, and he was just bopping all over the seat. I thought he was going to jump out the window. His head was going all different sorts of directions, and... 
And uh, that's a guy that's been moved by music. There's something that he hear, heard there that was really set him off. Well, we have to be careful about music. Uh, most of what I hear that comes from cars that are driving down the road are things that would make sailors blush. I mean, you hear all kinds of evil, wicked things that comes out of what they call music. You know, I think about this uh, uh, on that Navy destroyer I was on last, uh, last year. Uh, we always talk about, well, I just said, you know, things that would make a sailor blush. Well, when we were on that ship, this is one of the things they did. They made the sailors clean up their language. And that's because they had guests on the ship. So I didn't hear anything about people cursing and going on, on a ship like you think sailors would do. These were very polite people. But there are these many voices in the world that try to put evil into your head. Office talk, for instance. You know what I think about Christians? I don't think Christians ought to drink water at work. Stay away from the water cooler. That's where all the rotten jokes go on and all that kind of stuff. And you don't need to hear that. So just go without the water and uh, go thirsty and cover up your ears. What you ought not to do is listen to gossip. Turn all that stuff off. You listen to, listen to gossip, then you'll also be telling gossip. So guard your ears. The next thing is guard your mouth. Now the mouth is an indicator of the heart. Didn't Jesus say that? It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles the man. Didn't he say that? Guard your mouth. Guard what you speak because that tells what you've been listening to. You know that. I know that. That a filthy mouth indicates a filthy heart. You see and you hear evil and you will repeat evil. So I think you get the picture here of how this is going to start. Your mind should have... Uh, a picture of this, of those three little monkeys. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And I don't know who ever thought of that, but it's very good advice for Christians. A virtuous Christian should do that. Be like the monkeys. Speak no evil, hear no evil, uh, whatever it goes. See no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil. So what we have to do is just shut off all of the avenues of sin so there's nothing there that can feed sin to sit on the throne. And it will die right there. If there's nothing to feed it, it's going to die. And it's not going to sit on the throne for very long. It won't have any place to reign. And it won't come back to sit there. It will be dethroned. Now, I was going to give you the solution. But we're already after 7 o'clock. So I can't talk about solutions tonight. So we're going to come back to this. Because the next point, I want to give it all the time that it deserves. And so, in the meantime, uh, I haven't given you the solution, but because I haven't, don't go out and sin this week anyway. Say, he didn't tell us how to stay out of it. No, you don't really need me to tell you how to stay out of it. You already know that. And that's part of what ministry is all about. It's not telling you new things that you haven't heard. It's encouraging you to things that you already know. So, you already know what to do to stay out of sin. Next week, we'll come back and we'll talk more about it and just reinforce what we already know. So, I'll give you more encouragement then. What to do next? in order to live a virtuous Christian life. And if you're here tonight as a, and say that you are a believer, and I think everybody does, I can't look over the crowd and see anybody that says, well, I don't know Christ. Uh, if you are a believer that says, well, I don't need to hear that, don't need to worry about that, I'm not concerned about that, then uh, there must be some people in the good Sunday night crowd who might actually need to get saved. If sin is not a problem for you, if it doesn't bother you, then it's as simple as this. You need to get saved because it always bothers God's people. We've got to stay away from it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Uh, help us, Lord, in this struggle that we have. As we talked about Satan this morning and the influences that he has and the power that he has, help us to know, Lord, that there is help available for us, that Jesus Christ reigns over us, and we need to yield to his control 
and we have all the help that we ever need to live victorious Christian lives. Lord, help us to seek the right avenues, guard against our our eyes, our ears, our mouths about doing what is against you. Just help us, Lord, to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org